Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, last night at the block party, I started hearing a rumor going around group from group, person to person. And, and the rumor was that, that one of our uh, beloved members here at the church, Wobi, had come up with a new slogan for our church. Um, and as some background to understanding how this, this idea originated for Wobi, um, Chris Bowers, many of you know if you've been a part of the church for a while, has served in all kinds of roles, but one of the things he does that many people don't know is he mows the five acres of grass around here. And unfortunately, he also weed eats. And, and in the process of weed eating, he regularly cracks our windows open and has single-handedly kept multiple window and door companies in business here in Sugarland. And so the, there was one that happened just recently, and uh, we're very thankful for Bowers' service. I'm not trying to shame him there. It's, it's a funny thing for us. Uh, hopefully it's as funny for him as it is for us. But I started hearing rumors that there was a, perhaps a new slogan for our church rolling around as we're kind of exploring and moving forward with this open doors vision, that maybe we were a church of open doors and broken windows. And I thought, now there actually might be something there. A church that opens doors, but is not afraid to look at things in a fresh light. It's not afraid to look at things in a new way. It's not afraid to shatter some glass if glass shattering is needed. It's not afraid to make a mess if a mess is needed. Though I do have to warn you all, if you break it, you buy it. So this is a very metaphorical slogan that we're hypothetically adopting this morning. As we explore what it means to be an open-door church, and as we start taking these steps towards our goal of a 1,000 open-door actions this year, uh, we started last week by looking at the, the symbol and the centrality of the open table. And, and I truly do believe that it's an open table church that is the type of church that's able to open up the doors that need to be opened up in the world around us. And we looked at the story of Jesus reclining with tax collectors and sinners in Mark chapter 2. And we saw how one of the key elements of the table is that everyone is welcome. There are no Self-appointed gatekeepers allowed at Jesus' table. There are no barbed wire fences allowed to be built around it. Everyone is welcome. It's actually one of our core values here at the church, accepting unconditionally, making no conditions, closing no doors that could possibly get in the way of somebody. No matter how much we might not like them or agree with them or understand them, get in their way of coming to experience the grace of God and and becoming a part of his community. And I want to continue to explore this idea of the open table. This, this morning, though, I want to look at what happens at the table that makes it so special, that makes it such an important event for the Christian worship experience, and has made it such an enduring part of Christian worship for thousands of years, since the time of Jesus. And to do so, I want to look at a story in the gospel. So if you have a Bible, or at home if you have a Bible, if you'll open up with me to the gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I want to look at a story that we find here in Luke 24, and perhaps draw some conclusions from that. It's a story you may be familiar with. 
It's after Jesus' resurrection. <clears throat> there are two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and his companion. It's a seven-mile walk. They're headed to Jerusalem. And as they're, they're walking after Jesus' resurrection's re- resurrection, they still don't get it. They're disappointed. They're, they're sad that who they hoped would be king had been crucified. And if you remember the story, Jesus shows up with them along the way and starts walking with them and starts talking with them. But one of the most interesting things happens is, is they, don't, they don't recognize him. We don't know exactly why they don't recognize him. Is it because they simply don't recognize that the Messiah could be one who was also crucified, that that is the way of God's victory? But otherwise, they did kind of see this as Jesus of Nazareth, who they knew and followed before. Or if there was just some kind of veil on their eyes where they just didn't know who he was. He asked them, you know, why are you so downcast? What's wrong? What's got your day down? And, and they start telling him, right? They say, well, we had this, this guy. We were following him. We thought he was the one to save and redeem all things, but he was delivered up and crucified. And Jesus, we're told then, beginning with Moses in verse 27, all the prophets, starts to interpret to them and all the scriptures concerning himself. He takes them on a Bible study through the Old Testament to show them how this theme, this truth of God's descent into death was always part of the plan for his victory over death and liberation for his creation. And then in verse 28 is where I want us to pick it up. Verse, verse 28, this is the story, and, and we pick up at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted, Jesus, as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. I have a feeling, actually, that Jesus often wants to go further than we want to go with him. This has been something that I've been convicted of lately. When I'm trying to discern the Spirit or when I'm looking for an open-door action, sometimes I'm tempted, I don't know about you, but to sit on it for a while, to not immediately react or to not kind of promptly have a, a bias towards actions in terms of faithfulness to Jesus. I think it's often the case, at least with my relationship with Christ, that, that he wishes to go further with me, and I would often just rest and, and stay the night. But Jesus continues to move ahead, go forward, beckoning us to follow him. But they convince him, stay with us, they say, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. In verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. That language is very important. Clue in on that. He was at the table and he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven disciples and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen, indeed. He's, he's alive. He has appeared to Simon. And then verse 35, they told them what happened on the road. Again, this key sentence, and how 
he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. There's something I think Christians should expect to happen at the table when the bread is broken. And I think it's that we should expect to meet and experience and be transformed by the risen and ascended Christ. This is one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways, and I would say even a privileged way, that Christ has promised to be with, be in the presence of, come alongside and transform his people, offer grace and forgiveness and experience of God's love to those who so desperately need it. It's at the table with Christ as host, breaking bread, giving thanks for it. And the early church carries on this tradition and has found repeatedly over and over the same truth that they found on the road to Emmaus. That as the bread was broken, they recognized who he was. They experienced the risen and ascended Christ. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, there are three times Jesus acts as the host of a table. This is not the first time. This is actually the last time in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus acts as the host of a table party. The first comes in Luke chapter 9. There's a story about a miracle. Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 under his authority and lordship and the compassion he has for the crowds. Just a small offering of five loaves and two fish is transformed into something beyond anyone's imagination. And as Luke tells the story in in chapter 9, it's bracketed with two separate accounts that have questions. The beginning before it, Herod, who is the one who killed John the Baptist, asks, who is this, talking about Jesus, about who have heard such things? Who is this man? Then Jesus performs this miracle, feeds the 5,000. And then there's the second part of the bracket. Afterwards, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter has his famous confession, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. This way of the story being told seems to indicate that it's when Jesus breaks and blesses bread that he's revealed and received as God's true king, as our savior. The second time Jesus hosts a table in the Gospel of Luke is what we would call the Lord's Supper. It's it's during the the Holy Week. On on Good Friday, or Monday, Thursday, excuse me, it's the second account of Jesus serving as a table host. And Luke uses the same exact words to describe Jesus' actions as before. So in in chapter 9, we're told Jesus looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the bread and fish, and gave them to the disciples. In chapter 22, in this Passion account, as they celebrate a Passover meal, we're told Jesus, in verse 19 of chapter 22, took a loaf of bread, and he had given thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Now, the Last Supper, for Jesus and for the very earliest Christians, was actually a real meal. It wasn't just bits of bread and wine or grape juice. It was a full-on supper. There are parts to it, there's a certain liturgy to it, there's some worship included in it. And Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper when he does this with his disciples before his death and says, you now should do this in remembrance of me. When, when you eat together with me as the table host, when you 
have this common meal together, when you share your provisions with one another, you'll not just remember. I think there's more power in that word remembrance than just cognitive remembrance, but you'll participate in some way in the ongoing redemptive work of God. The Passover meal was a way of the Israelites remembering God's redemption of their slavery in Egypt, but also participating in that, also experiencing that salvation, accepting it as as God's redemption on their behalf as well, and anticipating future and final full salvation and restoration and new creation. Jesus here in the Last Supper, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, I think it's not just counseling us to have some cognitive recall, but this kind of remembrance that comes with the Passover meal, a renewed participation in the redemptive work of God. And then finally, here on the road to Emmaus, we get the third time Jesus acts as a table host. It's after the kingdom of God has come with his resurrection. For a third time, Luke uses the same words. He took the bread, he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. And it was at that time that these disciples who had not recognized him, recognized him. Jesus was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread, in the fellowship of the table. It was only then that they recognized him as the crucified and risen Messiah. Luke writes the book of Acts, if you're not aware of this. And in the book of Acts, this same language is continued to be used anytime the, that Luke is talking about the church participating in the, the art of the table, in, in the practice of the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or communion. They break bread together. They bless it and break it and give it to them among one another. Now, something happens early on in Christian history. There's really by the second century, a separation from this breaking of bread and a full meal. And I think there's something that we lose when we separate it out from a full meal. In fact, something I'd want us to explore as a a church and a ministry is, is having small enough communities where we could gather and have full Eucharistic meals together. Not just bits of bread and and a little bit of of wine or juice, but a, a full meal together. Nonetheless, the practice still continued for, for many centuries in the form of what was often called agape meals. The Christians would get together and have these, these feasts where they would remember and give thanks to Jesus, praise him for what he had done, be called to follow after him anew as they came around the table. And that's the invitation for us, is to, to feast in the kingdom of God, to receive God's abundance. We, we talked last week about how in Mark chapter 2, one of the issues we may have with hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, with that type of people, is, is we've all been taught, since we were very little, that the type of friends we hang out with rub off on us. And for the most part, the world has always understood that impure things make pure things impure. If you take something clean and put dirt on it, it now is dirty. With Jesus, though, he comes and completely reverses this flow. You see, Jesus' holiness is much more contagious than sin. Jesus' love is much more powerful than evil. When Jesus shares the table with a tax collector, he doesn't become more like the tax collector. The tax collector becomes more like him. There's something transforming about 
the presence of Jesus. So being invited to the table with Christ as host is an invitation to be transformed. It's an invitation to to be recreated in the image of Christ. And the Emmaus Road narrative in Luke, I think, not only illustrates just one story that happened where these disciples met the the actual risen Christ, but it also illustrates an ongoing principle that Christians have assumed to be true throughout Christian history, which is that it is at the breaking of the bread that we experience the risen and ascended Christ. Now, we don't experience the risen Christ in the same way, right? He's not walking alongside us. He's not going to appear this morning physically as the resurrected one and, and, and serve as the host of this table. And we have a hard time thinking through that and, and why that is. And, and one of the reasons is because largely theologically in, in the Western church, we've really ignored the doctrine of the ascension of Christ. We kind of really focus on the crucifixion and the resurrection, and sometimes we just smush the ascension together with the resurrection. A few years ago, I preached a sermon series on the ascension, and, and I myself was surprised at how important it is throughout the entire New Testament and how it does stand as, as kind of the climax of God's salvific work through Christ. We often, when we think of Jesus being ascended, have our gaze drawn awkwardly to how he departed, to the clouds, rather than to where he was going and what he was going to do when he got there. The scriptures say his ascension was his coronation, and now he is still incarnated, still the human God-man. He doesn't lose his humanity, he doesn't lose his connection with you and I during his ascension, but now sits at the Father's right hand, according to the creeds, and serves as not only the king of the world, but also as our high priest, representing us to God, taking our acts of obedience and faith and worship and presenting them to God, putting himself and his faithfulness in our place so that we might receive the love of the Father and the power of the Spirit to be able to follow after him. Though we often can affirm Jesus ascended into heaven, we're not so sure, I think, necessarily how to speak about what he's doing right now or why it matters. When he drops out of sight, so too, unfortunately, sometimes does the radical implications of his ongoing life for us and with us. The heart of the gospel It's Jesus being the incarnate one, God become man to make us new and to bring us salvation. That's where we find our hope in participating in the resurrection life with Jesus. And as our king and high priest, he guarantees that we share in the life of the Spirit and in his ongoing reign and in his priestly ministry to the Father. A couple things I want to point out about the ascension. In the pattern of Jesus' life, his descent and ascent, we find that his exaltation as God's coronated king, seated at the right hand of the Father, comes expressly through humiliation, through crucifixion, through death. And this is one of the ways that God's character has been revealed to us, that we know the extent 
of God's self-giving love. It's through this decent and ascent pattern that Jesus shows. It's precisely because in Jesus of Nazareth, the selfless, sacrificial nature and power of God are undeniably revealed that the Father undoes death itself and unwinds injustice through his Son's own death. Another implication of the ascension for us is the truth that kind of seems very basic, but yet I find still very powerful. Jesus is still alive. If, if you weren't aware right now, Jesus is still alive. You at home, Jesus is still alive. Over on this side, Jesus is still alive right now, which is why we can say maybe we can't expect him to meet us when we break bread because he's still alive and he's still active. Hence, we participate with Jesus rather than carry on his ministry for him. It's not like Jesus has passed the baton onto the church. Like he's done his part, and then he hands the the mission over to the church and gives them the spirit to help them out. No, Jesus is, is alive and active, continuing to send his spirit, continuing to guide his people, continuing to represent them before the Father as their kingly high priest. On on one hand, the ascension of Christ does mark the absence of Jesus in our lives. He's not here physically with us, which we may prefer, though Jesus himself says it's better for him to leave and the Spirit to come. But then on the other hand, at the Eucharist, at the breaking of the bread... Something different is revealed. As Douglas Farrow says, I quote, an equally incomprehensible presence is now here in the absence, joining our histories to his in a communion of body and soul so that we experience hope even in the midst of this present eschatological tension. You see, it's as the Father gives us his son in the Eucharist in our feast of remembrance and in our anticipation of what was and is and is to come, that we hear again our Father joyfully calling us to proclaim in our present lives that one day on this good earth made new in our new bodies, humanity will dwell fully and freely with him. We break the bread expecting to come into the transforming presence of Christ. And we do so because we know Jesus is still alive and still active. He still hosts tables. Maybe not exactly the way he was hosting the table for Cleopas and his companion in their journey on the road to Damascus, but yet in no less powerful and less transformative way. This is the faith we have as Christians. This is why it's one of the most privileged modes of encountering Christ, why we center it in our lives and why we center it in our services of worship. Because we expect to meet the risen and ascended Christ here. And when we meet the risen and ascended Christ, things happen. When we break bread, it's a time for us to, to, to give thanksgiving to express gratitude, which is something that transforms us. Neuroscience can tell you this. Living a life of gratitude is, is 
changing who you are as a person in a positive and healthy way. To break bread together is to become a more grateful person. It's an act of participation, as we've discussed, via remembrance. And again, it's an act of transformation, just like Jesus' table fellowship in the Gospels. The transformative presence of the crucified king brings us assurance of God's love and further conforms us to his image as we're equipped to participate with him on his kingdom mission. I was reading recently a biography of a pastor named Eugene Peterson. He's also a scholar and an author. You might be familiar with him. He wrote The Message, which is a paraphrased version of the scriptures. He has many, many great books. He actually has a great commentary, short commentary on the book of Revelation that I relied on heavily when we preached through the book of Revelation. But I got to a point in his biography where he described his morning prayer routine and the purpose behind it. And it struck me as so, so interesting. He said, I get up in the morning and I start my morning in Scripture and in prayer as a way of preparing myself to follow Jesus for the next 18 hours or so. Do you see the, the presence that he anticipates and expects? Do you see the, the knowledge of the risen and ascended Christ in that language? Jesus is alive and active, and I'm meeting him in prayer at the beginning of the day so that I'll be best prepared to follow him for the, the, I mean, maybe 11 hours if you're a napper, 18 hours, 24 hours if you're an insomniac, whatever it might be, whatever the day is to come. I might suggest we could take that same idea and language and apply it to the breaking of the bread. We come to the table, we, we break the bread as a way of being further prepared to follow Jesus for the rest of this day and as we go on throughout the week. The table's not the only way we can encounter Christ. It's certainly not the only mode that the risen Christ makes himself available to his people. I think it is a privileged mode, a special one. But as many of you have probably experienced Christ often reveals himself through worship and through the singing of songs or our favorite hymns. Christ comes close to us and moves in our hearts and our minds, sends the Spirit to work in us powerfully. As I've experienced multiple times, not listening to myself, that'd be weird, but from listening to others, and as maybe you've experienced, Christ often reveals himself in the preaching of the Word and in the Scriptures. The table's not the only the mode that, that we have here of experience of the resurrected Christ, but I do want you to note a difference here. Worship and preaching both have a, a human element involved here. The worship leader could be off-key, not ours, ever. Or, could, or the music could be too loud or too soft. Or the, the preacher could be wearing some distracting colorful shoes. You can be tired, off, boring. There's some, some human elements that are involved. But guess where none of that exists at the table, the breaking of the bread. Which is why at times at our church when we've introduced the moment of communion, we've, we've said things like this, all are welcome at the table because it's not my table. 
This is not Mike Skinner's table. This is not our church's table. This is not the property of Sweetwater Christian Church. We're not the ones hosting this meal. We're not the ones who've sent the invite out. And we're certainly not the ones who are going to provide the transforming presence and that experience of God's love that one hopes to find at the table. We're joining you in coming to the table to join Christ as host and experience those things. And so it is this morning that I simply want to remind and encourage us and kind of theologically found our focus on the open table as the place where Christians expect the risen and ascended Jesus to share a meal with them. And as we express gratitude, as we remember and participate in Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf, we'll find, like the tax collectors and sinners, that we're transformed as well. I want to end this morning by telling you a couple of stories, some examples of how this has happened. And this might seem unusual to you. I'm going to talk to you about stories of a mystic, a Christian mystic from the 13th century. And so her way of practicing faith and experiencing God is often a little bit more maybe spiritual than ours. Ours is a little more intellectual, Western and rational. But I think these stories may be encouraging to you and maybe might invite ways of you thinking of how you might best prepare yourself and anticipate meeting and experiencing the risen Christ at the table. So the person is named Gertrude. And actually throughout Christian history, she's become known as Gertrude the Great. She's a 13th century theologian. She was born in 1256 and as a child was put in a Benedictine monastery. I'm sure every kid's dream. In a place called Hefta, at age four. At age four, she became a Benedictine, a Benedictine uh, monastery resident. She received a pretty thorough education in liberal arts and in theology. And it was when she was 25 years old that she experienced a very profound conversion to Christ. And so the, the author, Maximilian Marnu, he describes her conversion as a shift, quote, from a life lived in a monastery and following a monastic rule, and thus having God as an object, but also permitting other interests and motivations, to a life totally centered upon and wholly given to God. And in some of her writings, Gertrude recounts a number of occasions in which she experiences these very intense and very transformative interior encounters with the risen Christ. I want to share just two of them with you this morning. They inspired me as I read about them. And they made me look forward to the next time I could break bread and perhaps have an experience at some level of what Gertrude was, was able to experience. Here are the two stories. One time she says, during the, the liturgy of the Eucharist, the priest had elevated the chalice, which is common in, in higher tradition churches. And as the chalice was elevated in the liturgy, she felt inside this desire, this deep desire to unite her will to Christ's offering of his life for us. 
and she describes herself as casting herself down spiritually in a, in a way of trying to express a willingness to follow the path of the cross like Jesus did, if that meant she could serve God and her neighbor. And then she describes Christ coming and speaking to her in this interior spiritual experience. But it's surprising. So in response to her casting herself down, Christ does something surprising. She says, I quote, he rose up in haste and laid down beside me on the ground. In essence, he joined her in her lowliest place. And he drew her to himself, claiming her as his own. She then says she responds to Jesus, who's now joined her on the floor by affirming, I am your creature. You made me. You are my Lord. The whole world was created from your hands. And again, Christ surprises her. And she reports him saying this, that beyond the gift of creaturely existence, a new gift is yours, Gertrude. That my love for you is so tightly bound with you that without you, I cannot happily live. Now, this is the type of language we would expect a husband to say to a wife. If you're having some issues, just go with that this afternoon, something like that. Okay, rephrase it maybe if y'all are both watching the sermon right now. Our lives are bound so tightly, it's impossible for me to be happy without you also in my presence, in my life, without this fellowship. But it's something that seems like it's inappropriate for God to say, for, for Jesus to say. Gershard recognizes that. And she certainly points out to Christ in her recollection that in his divine freedom and transcendence, He certainly doesn't need her or any creature to assure his happiness. And he responds to her by saying, not only after creating her, but now through his death and resurrection, he has willed himself to join her personally and to love her and care for her closely, refusing to lose her. Because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No height, no depth, no width. The second example and last one I'll share with you on another occasion. She was at a, a, a service celebrating the Eucharist, but for whatever reason, sometimes she has some health issues. I don't know if that was why on this occasion she wasn't, but she wasn't planning on participating in the Eucharist on this occasion. She was just attending the service. And she reports that Christ showed himself to her with as strong an emotion of friendship as ever any friend could render any other friend with tender, tender emotion. And she reports feeling a desire for more, wanting to encounter what she called the consuming fire of the love of Christ, to become one with his love. And while she hadn't planned on taking communion that day, she had a sense the risen Christ in this interior experience was coming to her to urge her to receive communion, to come to the table, to be united with him. And so, because she's in tune with the Spirit and willing to obey, she takes communion 
even though she wasn't expecting to. Again, I might sit on that for a little bit longer than I should, maybe. But she responds. She accepts communion. And as she's giving thanks to him with joy for the gift of the bread broken, he comes to her again in this interior experience. And as she recounts it, the risen Lord again surprises her with the power of his love. He tells her that in her original plan to not receive communion, she had supposed that she needed to serve Christ in a way like the ancient Israelites served the Egyptian pharaohs with servitude and hard labor. But instead, the risen Christ tells her his will, his desire, is simply to raise her in love to his very table at all times and to dine with her as a friend and an equal. And she quotes Jesus saying this to her, I chose you to be among those who would most sweetly take their fill of the delicacies of my royal table. And I think it's perhaps only when we can really understand how much Jesus truly loves us and how in the incarnation and the work of Christ, we've been so firmly united with the person and work of Jesus that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's only when we really get a good grasp on that that we then can love God back with the intensity that the greatness of his love deserves. Gertrude regularly found herself in these deeply intimate and profound moments during times of the bread being broken. And I think this makes sense based on the account we have of the disciples walking to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, and the truth that we as God's people should expect the Lord's Supper to be a special place of meeting with the risen Lord. And so it is now, I think, that there's no better thing to do to end a sermon like this than to break some bread. Like Gertrude, pray, anticipate, and expect to meet Christ, the host of this table, in a powerful and transformative way, to be reminded that he's still alive, to be reminded of his ministry of love and peace and justice, to be reminded of his kingdom agenda. And so we will do just that after I pray to wrap up our sermon this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for the great love that you have given us. And we give you thanks for the patience you show as we often take the long road to your love, as we often experience our path following you as a bumpy one, and one that starts and stops at various times and in various moments. We thank you that we can expect that the risen and ascended Christ still hosts the table and still meets his people there. And we pray that even if it's not as dramatic as Gertrude the Great, that in some small but powerful and real way this morning, here in the sanctuary or at home in your living room or, or bedroom, that through the bread and through the wine, the ascended Christ will mysteriously meet with us again.
We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.